Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to a special three-sponsor session. We're, we have a special guest, David Lurcher, here with us today. He's in Washington State. I'm in his home state of Utah, and some of you were there with David physically, and some of you are virtually. And this is a combination of a Washington Library Media Association, Library 2.011, and Future of Education event. So thanks so much for being here. And David, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad, glad to be here. And I understand you're in my absolute hometown where I was born, Park City. Oh, now that's interesting. I am in Park City. And there's a little cemetery here. Do you have ancestors in that cemetery? Well, I have my father and mother and my uh, just late son that we lost just a few months ago. And, and if you uh, check with the... If you if you're on your way up into town, you see the miners uh, the miners hospital, uh, and that's where I was born. It's in a little park, and uh, turned into the public library. So I say I'm the only librarian uh, that was ever born in the library. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a fun connection, and and what a testament to the uh, the wonderful connective powers of the internet. Uh, my interview series is sponsored by the Web two, my Web 2.0 Labs project. We have support today from Blackboard Collaborate. That's the platform that we're using to connect with you. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. The Library 2.011 conference is a free two-day uh, conference being held the 2nd and 3rd of November. 160 sessions, all online, all free at library2011.com. Our Global Education Conference is the 14th to the 18th of November. Same principle, lots of fun. This is the second year for that conference, and it runs over five days, if you can believe it, 24 hours a day. That should be a blast. We've also just announced the Learning 2.0 conference. Many of the themes we'll talk about today will probably fall into that category. And that's uh, the week in January of the 23rd to the 27th. More information at learning20.com. Coming up on my Future of Education series, lots of fun interviews. Especially noteworthy, uh, next week, Mark Sermon, the chair of the Mozilla Foundation, will be talking about the Open Badge Project, uh, Mike Marin on Road to the Nation. Lots of fun coming ahead. Feel free to go to futureofeducation.com, both to see the upcoming schedule and to see the list of recordings. Last night, we had Gina Bianchini, former CEO of Ning and now of Mighty Bell on, Tim Wilson on his fascinating book, Redirect, about narratives and their impact in education. Peter Cookson on a Children's Education Bill of Rights. Lots and lots up there. Hopefully something that's of value to you. Now we get to check and see where our virtual participants are from. I'm going to give you all capability here to put a star on the whiteboard. So if you're a virtual participant, look to the left of the map and look for the second icon down. It's a star shape. Click on that. It sometimes takes two clicks. Move your cursor over onto the map and click down. And it's fun if you want to put out in the chat as well where you're listening from, maybe the time and the temperature. We do have someone from New Zealand. Terrific. Now, if I've got my time zones right, uh, this is fairly, what time is it for you in New Zealand? I would have guessed it's pretty darn early. So I don't know, David, if you've got anybody in your uh, room that's traveled long distance to be there physically, but we've 
If we could, we'd recognize them as well. I think almost all of them are from Washington State somewhere. Well, that does make sense. We've got an Idahoan. Wherever you're listening from, where if you are listening to the recording, we do thank you for joining us and participating. So David, I'm really privileged. I feel like it's a privilege to get to know you in this way and to participate in this interview. Um, could you give us a little bit of your background so those who might not be familiar with you will understand the context of your work? Well, the first uh, 20 years of my life, uh, from where you are in Park City, I, I uh, milked cows. And uh, so I was a farm boy and went to college and, and that sort of thing. I became uh, interested in uh, uh, library science with the first uh, class I ever took. Uh, went off to the University of Washington here for my master's. Went to Indiana University for a doctorate and have taught uh, uh, you know, in higher education and been in publishing for, for many, many years. And uh, so I feel like I'm almost the grandfather of school, school libraries at this point, although wonderful people preceded me by 50 years. So, um, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, and, and the first time I, uh, uh, I was one of the very first users of Blackboard when it came out and was a free uh, offering. And uh, that was the time when I suddenly discovered that there was such a thing as an attachment to an email message. And so because I taught students all over California, we, we uh, required that they attach their, their um, uh, assignments to an email message. You, you would have thought we were asking them to climb Mount Everest. But they got over it and learned it, and, uh, and the rest is history. And so I'm a totally online professor now at San Jose State University and uh, uh, teach on um, uh, Illuminate, but now it's uh, going to uh, your collaborate, and uh, I really appreciate that technology. Well, and I should mention that uh, San Jose State University is the founding sponsor of the virtual conference coming up. Um, and we really do appreciate that. So I remember sending my first email, uh, and well, or I, I should say, I remember getting the first response back from someone from email, and the thrill that there was. How much has our perception or sense of teaching and learning changed because of the technology? Where do we see teaching and learning differently now because of technology? Well, I think there's kind of two camps. Uh, there are the people who um, transfer what they've already done from one, to, uh, you know, from face to face to technology, and I don't think that's a very successful uh, 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 thing that's uh, been happening. But those who have have learned that the technology, particularly collaborative kinds of writing, speaking, listening, um, those are the those are the folks who have made the most difference in teaching and learning. And I've I discovered that uh, you know as a teacher you always want to make incremental progress from uh, you know what you did last time to uh, this time. 
but as I've started to use technology better, I've, I've, I've begun to understand that uh, it's not an incremental impact on the learner, it's, it's an exponential. And so while I thought I would, I would improve every semester, suddenly I could go, uh, uh, I could increase what I get out of students in, in the same amount of effort and time as uh, uh, what, what they used to do. David, how much is this a new story? And how much is technology opening the door to kind of the alternate perceptions, more, the more progressive perceptions of education? Um, is this new or is this a reshaping of, ex of previous understandings of more sort of liberal arts education? In my experience, I think it's, it is new. I, I mean, I've never, I mean, everybody says that face-to-face -face education is the preeminent way of teaching. Uh, I don't believe it anymore. I used to think that was true, but not so. Uh, I mean, I use uh, this technology uh, uh, every week in my, my teaching, and I can do things now that I could never have done before by monitoring students, uh, including everyone, uh, using technologies that they're, um, for example, uh, Google Docs, where everybody's writing, everybody's participating simultaneously, uh, where, you know, they used to uh, have kids raise their hand and, and give a comment. Now everybody's talking and, and everybody's working. Uh, so, so it is a brand new world, uh, uh, truly an innovation, not just a transference of uh, what we used to do over into, uh, you know, just a, a, a new version. So as, how does that change the role of the student? There was a blog post this week that talked about our mistaking compliance for engagement. Does, do the technologies place us in a position where compliance is no longer the main goal? I think, you know, in the world that we now live in, there's two things happening. The first is the development of what I would call personal expertise. And that's what you know and are able to do as an individual. And uh, that's still extremely important. But there's, a, there's a, another thing that has appeared, and I call it collaborative intelligence. And that's the notion that uh, I throw my, uh, my personal expertise out on the table and then around the table together as a group we construct something that uh, none of us could have constructed as an individual. For example, the movie Up, which won the Academy Award, it took experts of a wide variety and uh, to, to be able to sit down at a table, collaborate and build an Academy Award winning film. And I think in the, in the flat world now, uh, that's what's required of every child and teenager that's trying to uh, build a career uh, um, in and compete globally. So before we talk about that learner, um, and I do want to talk about the learner, I want to talk about uh, the library and librarians. But before we do that, I'm curious about the need for the adults as teachers, as librarians, to become familiar with these technologies themselves. How important is that and, and how much can we ask them to 
to help their students if they don't have the particular experiences themselves in using the web as a learning device? Well, I think it's absolutely critical that the li all librarians move <clears throat> into the world where their students are. In other words, they've got to understand the world of social media, but also they've got to understand all of the, tech the learning technologies. Uh, they just cannot stay back in the world that you and I grew up in. Uh, it, it's just not an o a career option now uh, to dismiss a technology as a fad anymore or resist uh, um, what is going. For example, last year, I mean, you may be a book lover, but last year I think uh, e-books outsold, uh, outsold printed books. So uh, the world moves on and we have to move with it or we're, we're just gone. I am a book lover and then what I've found intriguing is that my reading has multiplied exponentially and that while I still read physical books, that Kindle device, in my case it's a, an Android tablet with the Kindle software, has become an essential learning tool. Well, I think it has for all of us. Uh, and there are, you know, emerging technologies all the time uh, that uh, increase our capacity uh, not only to survive uh, and do our work better and faster, but also intellectually uh, we can now connect uh, and become smarter as, as groups as well as an, as an individual. It's just, uh, uh, it is the most magnificent uh, uh, age I have ever encountered. You know, I, I think I was back and I learned on a typewriter as you did. And uh, uh, who would ever go back to that world? So describe for me your sense of the skills that the, the new learner needs. What, what, do, what do we need to be helping support students in doing? Well, um, I've been uh, writing and thinking uh, uh, along with Will Richardson and a bunch of other folks, uh, um, what, what is it that the young person has to develop um, uh, to be able to compete in today's world? And, and I think that um, the first thing they have to do is to build what I would call their own portal into uh, the information world. And uh, maybe that's their own iGoogle page or their own, uh, uh, maybe their own totally website. But they, they come into command of what, uh, of what they allow into their own personal space. Most of us, or all of us have learned that the internet is just a juggernaut that will run right over the top of us. And, and so um, every student, even young children, need to learn how to create their own safe uh, space, but a space that uh, they can allow in what they wish. And through that portal, then they are developing their own personal learning network. Um, a, a place where they are connecting to people all over the world that they want to listen to, the messages that they want to um, to attend to. Uh, it's it's part of building my own attention uh, uh, kind of thing, and I build my skill along with that. 
Uh, librarians have usually termed those information literacy uh, kind of skills. Um, others call them 21st century skills. So I build this personal learning network. And that, that all translates finally into my own ePortfolio, which is what I know and what I have helped through collaborative intelligence, what I've helped to build. And uh, so of that world, uh, there will be my private space of what I want to keep personal. But then there's my public persona, my public face, um, what I am going to share out with the world. And uh, so I'm thinking, um, you know, really that's a kind of trans, uh, transferring every kid and building every kid into a, their own personal librarian. I mean, that's what librarians have done forever, uh, gone out into the world of information, curated what, what it was, the very best, and then they translated that into um, uh, you know, uh, what they're going to push out to uh, the rest of the world. So uh, anyway, that's my idea. So in the, in the teacher world where I live, um, it takes a fair amount of time and effort to help educators to uh, even do these things for themselves, to build a personal learning network, to think about actually having an online presence. Um, so that would seem to me to be one barrier, and I'm wondering if that's faced by librarians as well. And the second barrier to me would be just the lack of school time for this kind of activity in, in a more test-driven society. Are, are you seeing those same two barriers? Well, those barriers do exist, but they're fading. Uh, I've, I've gone to uh, national conferences of ISTE uh, for a number of years now, and, and uh, I think it's changing. I mean, we've got uh, tech directors who uh, have been very fearful to open networks to kids, uh, realizing that they, they might damage them and, and hack them and all those sorts of things. But I think the trend is now to, to realize that there's a difference between administrative computing and instructional computing. And administrative computing, you know, is where all the grades and the salaries and the attendance and all of that sort. So that has to be locked down. But more and more folks with an educational background are becoming tech directors. And they see the opposite point of view, that it's how much you open the network to use is, is your uh, mark that you're making on the world. So I, and, and I think the teachers uh, you know, are starting to realize that too. And because the tools now are so intuitive, I think we can win over just lots of teachers who uh, once thought technology was uh, just beyond their capacity to learn. And I think uh, uh, one of the ways that uh, I've used, and I think a lot of teachers, if they'll just accept it, is to have uh, their own geek squad around them. That is kids who already are tech savvy, and we establish in our classroom this kind of feeling that I'll teach you and you teach me and we'll all learn together so that it's not always uh, the teacher having to be the smart techie person. Um, we, we can all, uh, and that is a major shift I think in a lot of teachers' lives, but once they accept that, then I think they just blossom and grow. So another sort of significant shift, maybe an overwhelming shift, 
is the shift of responsibility to the student to, to sort of self-direct their own learning. Are you seeing examples of this where schools or libraries are doing a good job of helping students assume that new responsibility? Well, I would hope so. After this session, uh, we are uh, having another session with uh, five uh, different uh, teacher librarians from uh, across North America who have who have uh, evolved from uh, libraries to learning commons. And in every case, I think uh, they're going to talk about the, the whole transformation of uh, you know, their lives as professionals as well as the kids' lives. And, and they start to see uh, this phenomenon happening where kids start taking command of their own learning. I mean, we could ask that of ourselves. At what point in our education life did, did we transfer from just being regurgitators of what teachers were telling us to do? When did we take command of our own learning? And uh, now I think the possibility with all the technology uh, and the kids' skills, they can start realizing that as children uh, rather than waiting until you're quote, doctoral years, which I did. I never did not take command of my own learning until I was in doctoral seminars. And, and I resent that. And now that we can, we can give that gift now through technology to uh, the, young, the young person and what a gift it is. So I'm going to ask my one hard question of the interview. Uh, like, like you've described, many of us kind of came to that mastery of our or sense of our own interest in learning later in life. Um, it feels like in a lot of ways libraries and librarians are either losing their jobs or being portrayed as not being as significant as, as it would appear they really are in this larger network story. Are there institutional forces that will push back against this kind of change? There are a tremendous number of voices out there. Uh, I read them all the time. I read a tremendous amount of professional literature. And the voices that are there that are begging us to develop kids who are critical thinkers, creative producers, um, uh, kids with deep understanding rather than superficial kind of learning. The voices are, they're huge number of them, but I don't think many of those voices connect anything that they're thinking about with their traditional concept of the library. It just, it, it just happens so rarely in professional literature that anyone of the stature of, uh, of notoriety across education uh, ever mentions the word library, and, and that that stereotype which they learned as a child about the function of a library in their life, which now has, has moved uh, far past what it used to be, uh, that connection does not seem to be there. And I think it's contributing to the demise of many jobs across the nation and the world. So tell us what, the, what a learning commons is. Well, a learning commons uh, transforms a library and a computer lab 
into a client-side organization. In other words, instead of being constructed by a specialist, a, a librarian, it turns into a guided creation by the expert, but everybody is participating in the creation of that kind of thing. So we titled it Learning Commons because its focus, number one, is learning. It is not the storage and retrieval of, of information. Uh, I mean, that's a part of it. That's its foundation. But that is not its central focus. Its central focus is how much are kids learning in this information-rich and technology-rich environment. And then the second word, commons, is a very historic term in the history of the United States. We think of the Boston Commons, which is uh, the open place where everybody gathered, and it is the foundation of democracy. So everybody was participating. Everybody is contributing. It's the kind of um, society Wikipedia type of, of thing where the crowd is speaking. Everybody's talking. Everybody's listening. Everybody's building. Everybody's constructing. So we take a library which used to be the storage space of the school, and we transform it into this uh, collaborative kind of exciting discovery, learning, uh, inquiry-based uh, place, a place to create, a place to collaborate, a place to share, uh, uh, all sorts of anything that you can think of that promotes the type of learning that everybody is at begging and, and uh, uh, that our schools um, uh, educate uh, uh, kids to be able to do. So what are the barriers to this kind of a comment being built? What, what do people who want to do this have to overcome? Well, the first thing they have to do is, uh, if, if you think in the physical sense, I mean, I go into lots of school libraries around the country, and, and the first thing, that when you walk in the door, the first impression you generally get is that it's a storage space rather than a learning space. And that's because, you know, most of the space is taking up, taken up by immovable objects, whether it's uh, banks of uh, uh, book, uh, bookshelves or uh, long tables of uh, computers that are, that are uh, uh, you know, networked and can't be moved in the in the, in the physical facility, and so one of the first things that has to happen is you have to kind of clear out that space. You ask the question: if it if it doesn't move, does it really belong here? That means that uh, the facility itself has to become flexible. So, uh, for example, at eight o'clock in the morning, it might be in one configuration to to handle uh, small groups, large groups coming in a particular hour. But by the second hour, uh, there are different needs that the learners have. And so the physical facility itself adapts to, adapts to the learner, not the other way around. And uh, so in physical space, uh, 
that's a, a place to start. And uh, for example, we were in Sue Kowalski's uh, 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 library. Uh, she's a middle school uh, uh, librarian in in, uh, in New York, and um, we just had a group of people uh, go into her space and just kind of look at it and say, you know, how many individuals can we we uh, have working simultaneously? How many small groups can be working simultaneously? How much production, you know, is it wireless so that you can cart, you bring your own device and you can sit down anywhere and compute and connect uh, so that I can be working. At, what about the tables? I mean, library tables are generally, they weigh 150 pounds or something, can't be moved. Uh, suddenly you can replace those with uh, with smaller triangles or, or oval shapes and, and so the furniture moves for uh, whatever has to happen in, in uh, quiet to noisy to producing to studying to all of those sorts of things. So the first, in the physical sense, you, you have to attack, you know, what this play, what is its function? And that has to transform first to learning and, and then the stuff, you know, all the stuff we have, which is, you know, books, physical books, but now digital collections are much larger than the physical collection, you know, the printed collection. So we, we just have to attack that whole idea of when you walk into the place. For example, in Valerie Diggs uh, High School Learning Commons um, in uh, Massachusetts, you walk in and the signs say, ask. Think, create. The signs don't say nonfiction here, fiction there. You see, it's uh, that transforms everything. It just when you walk in, it's a totally different feeling. Uh, so it the the environment itself is that third teacher, uh, which is the name of a title of a book uh, that was published last year by. Uh, group of architects. In the case of the school library, in an, in an environment that's often testing driven and financially strapped, who has to champion these kinds of learning commons? What, what, what allies do you need to create such a space? Well, <clears throat> ownership of a learning commons has to transfer from the librarian to the client. And that's the same in a classroom. In a classroom, um, you know, we, we, we usually think of the teacher as the director and the uh, uh, you do what I say. Uh, however, there's been a great movement to turn uh, teachers into coaches rather than dictators of learning. And uh, the same has to happen in a library. So you have to gather around you some folks who understand that this place can be owned by everyone and that the outcome will be, you know, uh, uh, super in comparison to what its function uh, uh, was in the past. So it's called a leadership team, uh, and uh, you can uh, take them uh, virtually or physically to uh, 
find a learning commons, uh, talk to the kids, talk to the teachers. You first have to have a vision and then that uh, starts to transform into your own uh, school environment. Okay, so tell us what a virtual learning commons is. Well, the virtual learning commons is uh, is a fabulous thing to think about. I think all librarians have some sort of website. And uh, the website that they have, of course, is a one-way stream of information from uh, them as experts to the client out there. Uh, but one thing we have learned long ago is that kids bypass our websites and they go directly to Google. And, um, and we perpetually have just continued to grow, uh, create uh, larger websites with more links and et cetera. And, but if you go out and, and do a lunchroom test, you'd probably find out that uh, given any information sources, uh, kids are going to Google much more often than they're coming to your website. So a virtual learning commons has to turn, just like the physical place, it has to turn from a one-way stream of information to a dual stream. That is, it turns into more of a Wikipedia type place where everybody's contributing and everybody, that means teachers are adding to that space, students are adding to that space, um, parents can be adding to that space, uh, experts, certainly administrators are adding to that space. And so it becomes the learning place of the school that everybody is in there. Uh, in, so the idea is if if we build it, they won't use it. If they build it, they will use it. Uh, and, and because they have ownership in that virtual learning commons. Now that, uh, that concept uh, is so foreign to, uh, I think, librarians and tech directors uh, trying to understand how you would allow kids to post on the library website or the virtual learning commons just starts to bring panic uh, to the entire school environment. However, it's not as difficult as one would think and there's so many models out there that uh, uh, the, the virtual learning commons has uh, a, a truly, I think, a tremendous potential, particularly for so many librarians now who are uh, part-time in a particular school. They can reach all of the children in multiple schools through the virtual learning commons because uh, in ways they could never reach them physically because they can't be physically present uh, in the particular, uh, you know, in all of the schools where they have a responsibility. It would seem that it would be certainly easier to manage a library or students in a compliance model versus the kind of engaged conversation you're describing. Is it fair to say that those who move forward in this way uh, have to be fairly courageous? 
Well, they do have a risk. Uh, they have to be risk takers, and they have to be techno smart, and they have to uh, they have to be uh, digital natives, just like uh, the kids uh, that that are inhabiting uh, the the schools where they teach. I think the the, uh, the challenge uh, to be able to do that uh, it's people who persist in taking care of the warehouse, uh, I think are starting to realize that those days are over, that, uh, that clericals can handle much of the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, acquisition, the storage and retrieval, circulation, etc. cetera, uh, of uh, the job. And so, uh, what they really need to do is move to uh, decide to move to the center of teaching and learning, or they just don't have a role at all uh, anymore in the in the school. David, is this the right site for people to go to if they're interested in learning more about Learning Commons? Um, yes, you do have uh, that's that's one place. Uh, uh, to go um, and yes, that's where the conversation is going. Uh, this site is kind of the extension of the uh, Learning Commons book that we published in 2008, and they're uh, publishing next week in a, a second edition. And so, yes, this is the site that accompanies uh, uh, that uh, that particular book. So when I looked up Learning Commons on Amazon, Amazon I found two, I found or, three two or three books. Is there one you would recommend as the primary book to look at? And we've lost audio from you if you're there. Uh, yes, there's a, the, the major book is um, by myself, Carol Kirshner, and Sandy Zwan, a couple of Canadians, uh, and it's called The New uh, School Learning Commons Where Learners Win. And then there's a book uh, by uh, Esther Rosenfeld for administrators on how to build a learning commons. And then we've collected all of the articles uh, uh, called Learning Commons Treasury from, uh, that we've published in Teacher Librarian, and that's a collective set. So. Uh, um, and those are the major resources. So we've got a few minutes before we move to Q and A. Um, you might want to, if you want to have people in the physical audience there ask questions, just alert me, and we'll be silent while you uh, take those questions from the physical audience. But before we go there, I'm interested in um, your own personal use of technology, and I understand that it. Uh, one point in time a couple of years ago there was a little bit of a debate about whether or not there was something called Library 2.0 and maybe some contention around it. Um, do you feel that um, there is something called Library 2.0 or, or what are the salient issues, issues involved there? there? I definitely feel there's Library 2.0 because uh, uh, as I think I said before the amount of uh, the amount of digital information out there that we have access to now dwarfs uh, the, the, the few uh, books that we're able to, even though they're in the thousands, 
uh, the few books that we're able to assemble in a particular collection. So there, uh, it's just just not the same at all. And I think most librarians recognize uh, that the world is totally different. Let me uh, just in, uh, let me just give you an example of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, ebooks are getting so popular now, uh, and really, what an ebook is is just the transference of words from a printed piece uh, to a, a, a technological device. Uh, but I've been experimenting with uh, uh, what we call a book to cloud, and a book to cloud takes a piece of text and turns it. Uh, or a, a book. In fact, I write textbooks, and I'm using uh, Book to Cloud uh, uh, textbooks now in my courses. And what that does is it puts uh, it puts a piece of text, or like a poem, or uh, Gettysburg Address, or uh, Peter Rabbit. It put it puts that in onto a Google site, and instead of just uh, going through the book and consuming it as a book. It invites you to create around that book. So, for example, uh, I put up the, which I have done, put up the Gettysburg Address. Uh, you can take, uh, so here sits on the front screen uh, the Gettysburg Address uh, in total. But each one of the lines, each one of the concepts has a different line and a different link. And so you can link from that particular phrase out into a room. And in that room, all of the readers, the learners in your class can be contributing. What does that mean? What does it mean four score and seven years ago? What, what was that? Uh, or we, we say, this happened in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. What is Gettysburg, Pennsylvania? And everybody can, and can start building content, and then they can start Talking about that content, and they can start. Uh, they can uh, they can write, uh, you know, because all of that content they've collected together is is there. So it turns a, 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 an ebook into a collaborative conversation with the original author. Now, even in the textbooks that I write now. They I put out. You know, you can watch my my chapter. Uh, that I wrote uh, the way I wrote it, but then I also provide an editable version. So you, as the reader, can go in and you can start adding, adding links. You can disagree with me. You can start to play with my words, and I encourage my students to do that. So I think there's a future um, for librarians in the creation, not only of uh, of just supplying original text. But, but providing interactive text in ways uh, that kids can then construct around. And, and of course, the ob objective is to build very deep understanding and also build information, information skills while we're doing it. So I'm learning how to learn while I'm building deep understanding about complex text, which of course is, is one of the major uh, goals of the uh, Common Core Standards as they're coming out. So I'm fascinated by that vision. It's essentially, the book becomes the platform for the conversation. Is there a web link or some way in which people interested in that could find out more about Book to Cloud? I think if you go to um, sites.google.com, 
slash sites slash you know that's the way they all start and then Gettysburg address B2C and you arrive there and maybe uh, um, so that's the idea and I'll just say that again sites.google.com slash site and then slash Gettysburg address, all one word, B2C. That's book to cloud, book to cloud. And, and you'll see that's uh, the big prototype we have up now, but we'll be creating many, many of them uh, and asking people to uh, build collaborative uh, kinds of texts. Or it could be a video, or it could be anything. Uh, but taking a piece and building a conversation around it. Terrific. Okay, so we're going to switch to Q&A. We have about 15 minutes left. Um, if you have a question in the virtual room for David, you can either ask it by putting it in the chat or you can raise your hand, which is the third icon over in the participant window, the raise hand icon. It will give you the microphone. David, if, if you have anybody in your room asking a question, just let me know and we'll pause while you take the question there. If, if you do get a question from your room, please repeat the question because we probably won't be able to hear it. So we'll while, we're waiting, we're waiting. while we're waiting for a question to come in, I run an unconference each year before the ISTE conference, and I understand that you run a pre-conference called uh, Treasure Mountain. Can you tell us about it? Well, Treasure Mountain is going to happen in a couple weeks. It's uh, uh, in 1982 we met in Park City, Utah, and we met. Uh, uh, a group of scholars of the field uh, met, uh, uh, joined with practitioners, and uh, for uh, you know over 20 years now we've been meeting, and and it's a chance for for researchers and practitioners to get together and uh, talk about uh, the theory of the field and translating that into practice. And the job of the researcher is to uh, educate the practitioner and the practitioner's job is to try to keep the, the uh, academic down into the real world. And so it's been a, a wonderful, wonderful big think uh, conference. We did get a question in the chat asking about copyright issues with the book to cloud concept. Well, of course there are copyright issues, and so, um, but you've got a world of, uh, you know, classics and things that kids study. You know, all the Shakespearean works. I mean, so uh, so right now it's uh, easy to build those, and particularly in the downturn of the economy. Uh, you know, take the classical texts or the, uh, and even if you can, you can build a book to cloud uh, by even just linking to this into the text. I mean, you may not be able to copy the text onto your website, but you can always link to it, and then build the pages where you know you say, okay, chapter one, chapter two, or line three of this poem, or you know you don't have to actually copy the copyrighted text in to build uh, the book to cloud uh, concept. There's an interesting connection here. Uh, by chance, I sat on a plane trip next to the gentleman at Amazon who's overseeing the new Kindle Fire project, and they have a very substantial difficulty or hurdle in that they don't have the rights to put to repurpose content to put it into that kind of a conversation space. So it should be interesting to see 
seems as though the open books and open resources are going to have a real head start here. Well, I think you're. I think you're right. Uh, so uh, we, we shouldn't let copyright be the barrier uh, uh, to it because if we can't actually, uh, I mean, everybody can own a copy of the book. For example, uh, the help. For example, I mean, uh, that that book is there, so everybody can have that book in in hand. But then there's the book to cloud version where all the conversation and construction is working, and and so nobody's nobody is. Uh, uh, you know, uh, violating copyright law. Okay, if you have a question for David, uh, feel free to put it in the chat, uh, or you can raise your hand. We don't want to skip anybody in the physical room, so we'll hope that David will let us know if somebody does raise their hand. Uh, George is asking, uh, I was wondering if you could speak more about getting schools on board with the technology of now. <laughs> <laughs> activism, 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 having kids demand it. Uh, kids are doing it. And I mean, any school who, who figures that they can lock kids out of, of their own devices that they bring to school are just fooling themselves. And kids have all kinds of ways to get around it. And you know, at some point you have to say, uh, you know, what are we teaching kids? Are we teaching them to be hackers and always to get around the system? Or are we inviting them in and ha having them help construct the system? And once you you finally face that issue, once uh, then you start saying, you know, why don't we start from an open perspective? And it, which is what we do in the physical world, okay? So er, all the dangers are there. We have to teach kids to cross the street. Well, are we going to lock them up in their rooms and never let them out? So we'll never let them cross the street, you know, uh, uh, because it's dangerous. No, we teach them how to cross the street. And so the same thing in school. We teach them how to build their own information networks, how to how to keep themselves safe, how to how to be good digital citizens, all of those sorts of things. So we have Claire who's raised her hand. Claire, I've given you the microphone. To turn your microphone on, you click on the talk button at the top left of your screen. Let's see if your mic comes on. Oh no, mic. Because so Claire, did you want to ask a question? Feel free to put it in the chat and we'll give you some priority here. We did have a question uh, from Christine. David, I'm interested if you have any thoughts about changes in higher ed. Well, I think higher ed um, needs to change as much as uh, the K-12 arena. Uh, I mean, I use uh, the way I teach with your, uh, with your technology collaborate, which is absolutely wonderful. Okay, I, I use it not, uh, you know, I can put people into groups, I can give them assignments, I can bring them back into the major room so that everybody's talking constantly. But I also move, uh, uh, collaborate off, kind of off to the side and use it kind of as a, a, like a conference call. And then everybody's working out uh, on the rest of their screens in various Web 2.0 technologies so that during class, we are not only talking and having a conversation, but we're also building and constructing in real time. 
Uh, so we can gather data, for example, in a Google form right during the class and bring it into a spreadsheet. Uh, you know, and then we can do analysis and synthesis of that information in real time. That was not possible before. So I think with a combination of technologies, uh, the uh, what I can get out of my students uh, as graduate students is exponential. I mean, uh, my students uh, this semester, as compared with students ten years ago in my classes, they're head and shoulders above uh, above what what my former students uh, were able to do, and it's all because of the technology. There's some delightful material from John C. D. Brown about uh, the learning to do peer reviewing, which in his case didn't happen until after he'd actually gotten his advanced degrees, but ended up being one of the most significant parts of his work, and he'd wished that had happened earlier. So Claire wanted to know, uh, what are the implications of Web 3.0, or the semantic web and artificial intelligence, for the future of libraries? Well, I think it's uh, not really known yet. I think I think uh, the semantic web, uh, in in theory, has many many things to uh, uh, that are theoretically possible. And so I think as it develops, uh, then I think librarians are just going to have to experiment with it and uh, figure out. Uh, you know what they've been doing over the years in organizational uh, organization of information, how that can happen in in uh, 3.0 uh, uh, better than it uh, did in 2.0, and uh, so I think that is uh, the jury's still out on that one. Um, but I am I am certain. I mean. Uh, that uh, the potential uh, there is uh, tremendous, and I think we will uh, we'll investigate it as much as we can, and and uh, start talking about it uh, on our systems and networks, and we'll all learn as a, a community together how to take advantage of it. I worry that sometimes we try and move past 2.0 too quickly. For me, 2.0 is about participation, and that feels like the huge historic shift. And, it, and I want us to dwell there for a while. Well, I agree with that because uh, we haven't even begun to milk the possibilities of Web 2.0 yet. I mean, uh, it's uh, I am still learning every day how to cram more in uh, in uh, less time so that my learners uh, uh, progress. Uh, you know, at a faster rate and uh, know much more. Um, so, uh, and and I keep, I always throw away my last uh, semester's work because I think, what have I learned since last semester? Uh, you know, in techniques of teaching as well as new technologies, and how could I compress, you know, what I know today, uh, in uh, join that with the subject matter and uh, produce a better a better learner as well as a more knowledgeable learner. So we have just a couple of more minutes. David, do you have anybody in the physical room who had a question? Doesn't look like we do. So I, I, it, the temptation to, to segue from your milking Web 2.0 to back to the beginning of our conversation where you were milking cows in Park City, uh, I'm going to have to bypass that because I have 
have one final question for you, which is, what is the big think? Okay. The big think is, uh, the, the best way to describe that is uh, you've got um, uh, athletic coaches who are trying to win ball games. They videotape the ball game. And then on Monday, on Monday after the game was on Friday, they sit down with the team, both the coaches and the players, and they review the videotape of the ball game. And they do that because uh, they've got to analyze and synthesize what went right and what went wrong. And if we're going to be prepared for next Friday and to try to win the game next Friday, we have to do what I would call a metacognitive activity. So when a teacher and a librarian join hands to uh, to co-teach a learning experience. After the, after the experience is over, after the grades are in, then with the learners, they have to kind of replay that, that learning experience with each other. And they, they, they do two things. They first look, about, uh, look at the deep understanding they were able to build over time about the Gettysburg Address, for example. What do, we, what do I know personally? And what did we, we build, the knowledge we built about that great speech? The second thing they do is they look back at the learning journey. How did we get from point A to point B? And what mistakes, you know, I mean, we use technology. How did we use it? You know, what went wrong? What went right? How could we use it better next time? So that every time the librarian is, is uh, working with a, a learning experience, that big think at the end, the absolute end, catapults the whole group. The next time we do a learning experience together, we will be more sophisticated. We will be able to win the next ball game better than we were able to do the last one. So over time, over a school year, the kids from September to June, they get more and more sophisticated at doing that. And it's all because of the big think activity. I think that's the perfect place to stop because I could hear the passion in your voice. Um, I'm clapping for you. There's a little icon there with the smiley face. And if you scroll over that and go down, there's an applause button. So thank you, David. We've been speaking with David Lurcher, who is at the WLMA conference. Uh, thank you for coming in. Thanks for those of you who have participated both virtually and physically. A terrific session. Lots of fun. David, thanks again.